it just busted open this conversation. And in my opinion, where this culture work is going to happen is in schools and in companies and organizations. This is where human beings, Americans in particular, are going to get access to this information, to the professional development trainings, the DNI assessments, the language, the understanding of history. And so while we may have seen a regression, I believe seeds have been, but it is not without major, major impact on many companies and organizations who are servicing this work. Welcome to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground, where we talk about supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity with everyone from academics, historians, and business leaders. With your hosts, Chloe Guidry-Reed and Adam Moore, you'll hear inspiring stories and practical tips for overcoming challenges and gaining insight into supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. I'm Adam Moore, and today in studio, I have Matt Colicello joining me as my co-host. And today, we're thrilled to have Takima Robinson on the show. She's the founder and CEO of Converge, a national powerhouse in social justice consulting. Takima and her team at Converge are dedicated to accelerating the creation of a radically just new world, focusing particularly on uplifting communities of color. With a strong background in coalition building, economic justice, and transformative strategies. Takima is here to share her insights with us on how nonprofits, small business leaders, and corporations can play pivotal roles in shifting power dynamics towards true equity. Takima, we are so excited to have you on the show with us today, learning more about your journey and the impact that Converge is making. Welcome to the show, Takima. So glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So glad to have you here. So glad to have you here. We love to start the show off by understanding the path that our guests have taken to be where they are doing the things that they're doing. So can you start us off with sharing a little bit about your journey to creating Converge? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, really humbled to be here with you. I had such a great conversation with Matt. I'm really looking forward to the time we spend together um, again this time. Yeah, so I I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, I'm a native Connecticutan. I think that's how you say it. And so that's where I grew up. And I was born into a family of civil rights activists. A lot of my family was very much involved in desegregation of schools. And my parents were young people around the time that the Black Panthers were really moving across the Northeast. And they were really involved in some of that work in the 70s. Bobby Seale's trial, who's one of the founders of the Black Panthers, happened in New Haven, Connecticut. And so I was born in the middle of all of that. Our home was often the place where organizers and activists met. And my grandmother even ran for public office and represented our community. So uh, the work of social justice is sort of in the bloodstream. I often reflect to that we are fortunate enough as a Black family to own a significant amount of land in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, which was once an underground railroad site. So it's almost like magical <laughs> to think about <laughs> the work that I do now and my family background and legacy. I went on to attend Howard University 
which I think really helped me develop my social justice analysis. I was a political science and African-American studies major. I got, I was taught by some of the foremost thought leaders and folks who like made the way, like the reason there is a black studies or cultural studies. I got to sit at their feet, but I also was able to do this in Washington, DC, where I was exposed to Capitol Hill and working in Senator, my Senator from Connecticut at the time, Christopher Dodd's office, working for folks like Vernon Jordan in the middle of the Monica Lewinsky trial. So I've had some really, really interesting experiences, but at the core of kind of who I am has always been someone who has been on a path of personal liberation, but understands my personal liberation is connected to the collective. And so Converge's purpose is really my life purpose to accelerate the creation of a radically just new world where all communities thrive, but particularly communities of color who have often gotten the short stick, um, short end of the stick throughout history. So I'm really proud to do this work with an amazing team affecting change in organizations from the American Medical Association to the ACLU and all types of other organizations in between. That's just awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, I would definitely say you definitely have the pedigree to doing what you're doing now. That is impressive. Highly impressive. So that is that is so totally cool. And I'm sure the the dinner table conversations at your family sound like they were energetic. (laughs) And they still are. Yes, I can only imagine. They still are. It's sort of the family business. Like I have my my brother and my sister-in-law are social justice documentary filmmakers. Oh, wow. Okay work across criminal legal reform. It is kind of the family business. And that's awesome that they're doing that. I mean, I know we're not here to talk about criminal legal reform, but that's a, a big topic for me, too. So I I love meeting other like-minded people in that area, right? So that is just absolutely fantastic. So social justice, DE&I, supplier diversity, ESG, these are all things that seem like you can't go through a day without having a serious conversation about them at some level as we're interacting with other things. And I know at my time in corporate America, sometimes as the director of supplier diversity, I would walk into a stakeholder's office and they're like, I could see it in their eyes. They wouldn't say it. I could see it like, oh, here comes the DE&I guy again. And I'm going to get beat up over blah, 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 blah. Right. But that's not it. And I think what people real need to realize that we're not here to beat you up. We're really here to make sure that we keep the company safe. We keep you safe. And we're providing the opportunities to diverse cultures that we have gone out and publicly said we're going to do. So I always told people we're like a very specialized risk officer when it, when it comes down to that. But with that kind of backdrop and, and kind of some of the things that all of us on this show have faced and dealing with our peers, how does Converge help the organizations operationalize their racial and intersectional justice? Right. And, and that's. Very, very, very important to understand we're not punitive. We're here to help you do better for everybody involved, right? And that's the operational piece that I think is tough for people to get their minds around. So love to hear about how you guys do that. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think there really are two sides to the work. There's the side that's about mitigating risk. And I think that motivates people to a certain extent. And sometimes that's the that's the play you have to make, right? To get them to start talking to you. It is. It is. Where I hope we can get people to is really seeing diversity 
as cutting edge, diversity as another power tool, right? That if they can unlock it, you now have the benefit of all of these people's myriad experience and all of their assets that you can bring to bear. So I also like to make sure that the motivation isn't always the stick, but there is also the carrot. I like to talk about the Mm -hmm. North Star. And when I talk about accelerating the creation of a radically just new world when communities of color thrive, what we know is when folks who have been formally left out are included, we actually all do better, right? So really helping a organization wrap their head around that. And so that the motivation comes from the motivation is is sort of positively oriented. Although we have to, Adam, to your point, sometimes use the tool of risk mitigation as well to start the conversations. But I think what we do particularly well is really helping people tap into the bigger why and see themselves in it and see the benefits that come along with this very hard work because this is heart, mind, culture shifting work. It is, it's, it's not easy. And we understand why people are reticent to jump on the journey. Yeah. And that's a great, I, I love that it's a mind shift too, right? And on both sides of the aisle. Right. And 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 it, it really kind of makes some of these conversations difficult. But that is that is absolutely fantastic work. I, I love that. It is so much about culture building, just as much yes. as, it, as it is about organization building or policy building. And I mean, I think coming from your background, having been constantly in and around the work of organizing, you, you bring that to to all the work that you're doing. Definitely. Yeah. So I think sometimes in this conversation, we have a habit of beating up on the corporates. I think it's perception at some points, right? But small and diverse businesses, they do enjoy winning their business with corporations. It's usually you're winning a 36-month, five-month contract. So you've got a pretty stable cash flow, right? But oftentimes we hear critiques about how they're getting treated once they're finally inside an organization. Right. And and especially when it comes through that lens of the racial and economic justice. But from your experience and, and dealing with both sides of the house, so to speak, how can suppliers advocate for themselves? And I think that's a great way of putting it. Right. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of times corporates don't realize there's a problem with the policy, not because they're ignorant or don't want to change it. They're just unaware. Right. They really so are. you have to have them be an advocate for themselves and and help them kind of guide their larger clients into a more well, not accepting state equitable relationship equitable relationship, equitable Matt. relationship. yes thank yes. you for helping me out there <laughs> yeah well i wrote a very long letter to an nfl team once <laughs> about this topic awesome <laughs> and what i found in negotiating that contract and again when you talk about i live on both sides of this aisle i'm the dei consultant that is also trying to work with major corporations, right? I also sort of understand this experience as a black woman owned business. And so I do agree with you, Adam. I think that folks do need to speak up on their behalves. Let's talk about why people don't though. They don't because of course the contract's on the line. And if I say something, will I be able to get in the door? Will I be able to build that relationship of trust 
where you will allow me to say things to you that you may not like or bring a level of feedback or critique. And so we have to understand there is a lot of risk at stake for a minority business owner, a woman business owner speaking up in this way. And oftentimes folks don't aren't ready to receive that. And again, that is where this work becomes really interesting, especially when you're going in as a DEI person, <laughs> and you are actually having a meta experience of how they treat their vendors and you're trying to do this work and establish this relationship. And so I definitely have had to really sort of sit on that edge quite, quite a bit. There have been a few times when I have had to speak up on behalf of the organization, my company, or even on behalf of employees or other stakeholders to the business, the corporation or the organization. And it, it, it comes it comes with some pause. You want to get your words right. You want things to land in a way. But I actually have found that instead of folks shutting me down, which that ha has happened before as well, I've also found that people really appreciate the courage. And they know that when they are working with me, they're going to get someone who tells them the truth and shoot straight. And that has that's a big part of establishing a relationship and doing this DEI work is I've got to be able to tell you things you might not want to hear. And sometimes those are things that have to do with how my company or my employees are being treated or experiencing or negotiating our, our contract. And so I've chosen my words carefully, but I have chosen to speak up. And I've also done it instead of just making the critique, I've made suggestions for what could be done differently. With this said NFL team, they have been using an antiquated contract that they've been using with vendors and even some of their players. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. And so imagine me looking at a 50 something page <laughs> contract from an NFL team that's been protecting its interests mostly around its players, right? Or it's that, that type of business. And so we were able to say to them, you have stated publicly that you have an intention to move the needle on diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is what we're experiencing when we receive this contract. These are all the ways in which it disadvantages us and doesn't create an equitable partnership. These are some suggestions of things that you can do to augment this contract so there's more mutuality. Here are some clauses. Would you be open to that? And that's been the approach that we've taken. And it's also been received well, because to your point, Adam, often folks don't know. No, they just right? don't. Your lines of business had nothing to do with managing these types of concerns. And now they're stepping into a new space. And there's a real opportunity for education. Yes. I, I love that. Right. And it's all about the relationship. It's all about transparency. Right. And I know that when I'm talking to my team or I'm talking to a new supplier, I'm like, let's let's be honest about what it's like to work in this environment. Right. And I think that's something that needs to start moving out of the supplier diversity realm. And our procurement professionals need to really start leading this conversation more than they are of, hey, small business, this is what it's like to work with me. Right. This is what this contract is going to look like. This is how the communication flow is going to work. You can expect to, to have X amount of time to turn something around with us. And oh, by the way, we may audit you. 
we never bring this up, right? We shove a contract across the table and we're like, you either sign it or you don't because I'm going to go find somebody else that will. To your point, Takima, then the small business feels like I've got to have this business. They sign it. And then all of a sudden you find yourself, it's kind of like a real relationship. You find yourself in a toxic one, right? All the way around. And it's all because we don't take the extra, what, 20 minutes to sit down with a small vendor and say, here are the bigger points I need you to really think about before you say yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Adam, that's gesturing towards, I think, the other side that I want to ask Takima about, which is what do you say to big corporations when you're working with them, when Converge is, is engaging with an enterprise client and you're trying to help them build practices for engaging communities and vendors of color, what do you say to them? Where do you begin to reform the way that they operate? Yeah, well, first of all, everything is built on trust in relationships. Totally. I really try to make sure that's where we start. We start really building a relationship with them before we start telling them all the things that are wrong. I want to spend some time with you. I want to observe. I want to collect some data. I want some information. I want you to be able to trust that when I hold a mirror up, that what I'm reflecting back is accurate. So that part is really, really important before we just sort of jump in there and critique. And then I think that relationship sets the foundation for really honest conversations. So those that that is always where we begin. We talk about deep listening and observation at Converge quite a bit. So I think it's always important to start there with observation and listening and relationship building and 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 really fortifying that type of trust because we have worked with clients that didn't trust us, right? Or they were really reticent or resistant, resistant to hearing and, and, and having things reflected back. And they were really just interested in checking a box. I think right. a lot of DEI professionals experienced that post George Floyd, people who weren't really ready. And so I think it's important to sort of sit back and listening in. And to your point, Adam, even the contract negotiation process is where we're building the relationship. You exactly. know, we're building the relationship right then. So I, it has to start with that part. It has to start with that part. We're human beings. We need relationship. We need trust to be able to ground ourselves. Beyond beyond that, I think it's data is really important in, in this, that this is not just my subjective observations. I think data is really important. I think data is as rich as the sources. And so for us, we want to be really inclusive as we collect data so that we give as many people an opportunity to participate and be part of, of that process so that when this data comes out, it really reflects the fullness and the range of the organization. So those two things I think are foundational, the trust building and the relationship and the data collection and making that as inclusive as possible so that both our analysis and our recommendations are, are really, really grounded. And we've developed the, the respect and the rapport to be able to now open a conversation of recommendations and of feedback. Do you have some just quick thoughts about how corporations do data, can do data better? Because I think that there's generally a feeling that when an organization is 
doing its own research on itself, that it's not necessarily the most trustworthy. How do you generate data about things like DEI that really makes a difference and that is trustworthy? Yeah, well, we definitely recommend that organizations continue to collect data on DEI and that they are continuing to look at, whether it's on the procurement side or the employee experience side. And so we definitely want to see organizations doing that, but there are limitations. And again, this goes back to trust, right? It really does go back to trust. And and even in an organization like mine, where we have a very small staff, a really tight team and a really great culture, it's still necessary for us to bring in third parties at times to be able to authentically collect data that I don't think we are capable of collecting for ourselves on our own team. So I think it's important to have a both and approach, understanding what the limitations of both sort of data collection methodologies. Now, do you need a DEI audit every year? No, you don't. And I, my other, my colleagues in this, in this field might disagree, but I don't think you need that every single year, but do you need it every three years? Probably. And in between the organization should be set up to collect leading indicators and be reflecting on them periodically to make sure that their goals related to DEI are moving forward. And so really monitoring their progress is what an organization should be doing for itself. But I think it should be working with third party consultants or other parties when it's really ready to do a larger audit or a deep dive. Gotcha. I love that. I love that. So as we're kind of coming to the end uh, of our show today, I think one of the biggest things that has been a discussion, again, as we said, on both sides of the house is some of the significant pushback we're seeing in the public sector and then has translated to the private sector around DEI, right? I mean, we've seen numerous legal challenges ranging from Supreme Court's decision to end affirmative action, the lawsuit against the Fearless Fund. Can you help shed some light on the broader implications of these different legal actions and, and give us a little bit of perspective on, on how they're altering the landscape, how that's affecting things like racial equality and diversity initiatives and all of these things that we hold dear and and really make a positive impact on our communities at a greater level. Would love for you to share with us on that. Yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for acknowledging that. Many, many, many of my colleagues are are really feeling the brunt of this this regression. Yeah, regression. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, this this regression. And I think it's not surprising though, if we really reflect on this. I think the world there was a moment we talk about move moments in movement, like there was a movement moment post George Floyd that really brought you know, many of us into this conversation, many organization, I don't know, one DEI, DNI consultant whose phone wasn't ringing off the hook. I think it does speak to some level of the authenticity and genuineness of many of a lot of that outreach and the readiness of our company and organizational cultures to really be able to do this work. But I actually still believe it was progress. 
there are lots and lots of, of remnants of that work that continue. There are things that got funded. There are commitments that corporations made that I believe will endure. The other thing is it started, it just busted open this conversation. And in my opinion, where this culture work is going to happen is in schools and in companies and organizations. This is where human beings, Americans in particular, are going to get access to this information, to the professional development trainings, the DNI assessments, the language, the understanding of history. And so while we may have seen a regression, I believe seeds have been, but it is not without major, major impact on many companies and organizations who are servicing this work to have that regression. And so it is definitely impacting people's bottom lines. I think that the the attack on fearless um, is something we all have to really pay attention to. I think that I think we all know that it is a, it's a strategy and it's a strategy that the folks behind it intend on replicating. Sorry to jump in, but for our listeners who aren't familiar with the fearless mm-hmm. fund, say a little bit about that. Yeah, the Fearless Fund is a fund, a private equity fund that was created I want to say a little bit before George Floyd, I don't remember exactly when they were founded, but around that time, they were definitely invested in quite heavily, but specifically to fund the black women entrepreneurs. And as many people know, black women entrepreneurs are the highest growing class of entrepreneurs in America, right? So we have all these black women starting these businesses, many of whom were bootstrapping, Fearless came along private equity, how do we invest in these founders? And now they have been sort of attacked for using, for prioritizing black women as part of a strategy for deploying resources. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. That was a great summary of that. And I really appreciate you kind of helping some some folks maybe like I've heard of it, but I have no idea what it did. So that was a great, some, a great summary (laughs) of that, but I like what you said. And I heard somebody else make an, an, a, kind of a parallel statement. And they said, actually, the the striking down of this is like taking a bandage off and you're having to look at the wound again, right? The healing has some healing has started, but now we're kind of looking at the ugliness of the wound again. And I thought that was a very interesting parallel, right? And I love what you brought out, Takima, and that is for the companies where DE&I is a part of their ingrained culture, this made like zero difference to them. Right. The company that I work for, the CEO came out at a a all hands call and was like, it's not going away. This is who we are. Right. This is part of our culture, regardless of what the government says or local government say. This is who we are. This is the course we have set. This is the right thing. And we are going to continue doing it. Right. A very strong statement. Loved that. But I think what this does is and it kind of comes to a little bit what we said at the head of the show is. Sometimes mitigating a risk is the reason why people get into DE&I, right? And if the government says thou shalt and you want to keep your your corporation's charter, you will, right? So they take that away. And now we really kind of see who is really walking the walk and talking the talk. And I think that sheds a lot of light. And what I love about the generations coming up now, I think it's going to have a huge impact on those businesses because they really and truly, as the old expression goes, vote with their dollar. 
And now they're going to see who really is doing this work. Who really is serious about DEI, ESG, CSR? Who's really putting their literal money where their mouth is? And that's who they're going to go start doing business with. Yeah. And I think we're going to start seeing some radical social changes based on not on a government mandate, but by the power of the consumer. And like you said, Black women are our upcoming entrepreneurs. Guess what? That's also going to make them one of our larger consumers. When you start looking at B2B products, it's going to have a ripple effect. So mm-hmm. I love that you brought that out. That is that is awesome. Yeah, thanks for that, Adam. For our listeners who are at some of the many major corporations who in the last year have laid off employees who are working in the DEI space or who have recanted on some of their goals and policy or who have disinvested in programs, what would you say to them in terms of how they can operate within an organization that's behaving that way? Is there an organizational strategy that they can bring to counter that? Matt, you know I'm an organizer. He he let you right into that one. Yeah. The answer is organized. The answer is organized and organizing can look like walkouts and strikes, but organizing can also look like conversations and in speaking up and it can look like letters. And I do think we have like the same way that we talk about like, what does it take for a minority owned business to speak up? We also, and then in the risk that comes with that, we also have to know that a lot of, it's a lot of risk when employees take these things on and become advocates inside of their organizations. And we've seen a lot of people lose their jobs for speaking up against these things. And so I always tell people, you can't be in, you can't uh, organize one, right? So always organize in a group. And so find many of these organizations have, have ERCs, right? You could start there, but always making sure you're organizing, you're organizing in a group and good organizing comes with it begins with conversations and it can escalate. But I always say, begin with the conversations and, and do it together. Don't go alone. But, you know, it is really important for uh, employees to speak up. It's extremely important. And, and, and that's just foundational to any type of change we'll see in the world. When people speak up against something in mass about something that is not right, they force a conversation. Um, that needs to happen. And so, yeah, organize. Love that. Absolutely love that. Well, uh, Takima, this has been an amazing interview. I cannot tell you how great it is to have had you on the show today. I know personally, I feel energized about this topic again, and I'm ready to go take it on and and uh, to to let my voice be heard again. So I really appreciate your, your just boy, your your whole vibe today has just been amazing. The, the energy you brought has been great. So thank you so much for that. Thank you very much for your time. And if you guys love this show, please go and look for our other episodes that are out there wherever you listen to podcasts. We would love to have you leave comments for us. Let us know what more you would like to hear in the way of topics or content or guest speakers. So we are here for you guys. So Takima, thank you again. Thank you all for listening. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. Can't wait to continue following your work. I'll be listening in too. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. 
Take care. Thank you for listening to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. We are grateful for the time you spend with us in participating in these conversations. Please review and rate and share our show as we are focused on growing awareness in the supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity space. If you'd like more information, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E ground dot I-O. Thank you for being here and we look forward to seeing you next week.